Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Decoding Society. This is your host, D'Angelo Starnes, and today is Sunday, April the 1st, uh, 2018. It's uh, simultaneously April Fool's Day and Easter, and some people might say that's uh, also synonymous, but, you know, no lie. That laughter that you heard is our, the laughter of our co-host, uh, Chris Cascart. What's up, brother? I, I'm good, man. Happy Easter. Happy Easter to anyone um, we're fortunate enough to have listening. Um, and if you listen later, I hope your Easter went well. All right, man. So uh, we got, um, we're going to do a two-part show. Uh, this is the first part, obviously. Um, it's kind of a... a, a Dissection of a 50 year dissection And it could be complex And it's also part of a continuum Of discussions we've had On various topics here at the Decoding Society Uh, But uh, the recent death of Linda Brown uh, Who was the plaintiff student In the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case And the upcoming 50th 5-0 anniversary Of the assassination of Martin Luther King uh, Brings up the question of the state of separate, uh, the separation of Americas and separate Americas, uh, because uh, those two histories are intertwined in uh, the fabric of the, the cliche term, the fabric of our society, uh, and the interwoven nature of uh, the various races and cultures uh, therein. Um, so uh, we're going to. Uh, that's what we're going to dialogue on, and we'll hit a few uh, topics and themes within that. But uh, before we get to that, um, we'd be both Chris and I would be remiss if we didn't address uh, this brewing uh, controversy that happened at uh, both of our alma maters, which is uh, Howard University, and uh, <laughs> so there's uh, been a scandal that was unveiled. Uh, earlier this week uh, via a uh, post on Medium.com. Medium.com, for those that don't know, is a op- kind of an open, you can describe it as an open source blocking platform. Um, right. Uh, you, cr- you can create an account and write articles. Um, and uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of quack articles on it, but uh, there are also some well-sourced and well-written Articles on there by some folks that are, you know, uh, ex journalists or ex employed journalists. They're journalists, they're just not employed, uh, professors, scholars, uh, and whatnot. But uh, in any event, uh, there was an article uh, from a whistleblower for the recounting uh, some allegations by a whistleblower about uh, there being some embezzlement of. Uh, funds in the Howard's financial aid office that occurred over a several-year period and which culminated in the termination of some employees in that department. So, Chris, uh, the folks have heard me talk for almost five minutes. Uh, Let's let you pick up where that goes, and then uh, we'll take it from there. 
No, I, I think you laid out the um, you laid out the terrain. I mean, pretty well. It, it was a it, the whole student protest, as student protests are. I mean, here history at Howard, other universities, they move really rapidly. Um, and I, I, you know, that this this financial aid scandal apparently it 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 went on from was it 2006 to 2017 or something like that. So it was a while in the making. Uh, and I, my initial impression on that was, as they say, it's not the crime but the cover up, or the lack of transparency. Right. I just believe, I believe this was an avoidable issue if the administration, once the information was in and the facts were known, were upfront with the Howard community about what had happened. I mean, in any large bureaucracy, you are going to have graft and you're going to have people who do things that are um, unseemly. So I wouldn't be mad right. at the fact that someone stole money. I'd be disappointed, but I wouldn't, because that, you know, you multi-million dollar, billion dollar institutions, whether it's for-profit or non-profit, whatever the industry, you're going to find people who do things wrong, but you have to have a degree of transparency when these things happen. And I think if you read the students' demands beyond um, the resignation of the president, which stems from this thing with the financial aid, it's an accumulation of different uh, issues that they've been, you know, agitating for, demanding attention be given to. So, I, you know, I, it's, I'm an old, and you, I don't have to tell you, but for the listeners, I'm a student protest guy. I just think that, you know, and the interesting thing, and I, I would say this, I've heard from a lot of alumni, and the conversations are eerily similar to the kind of conversations we used to have when we were actually <laughs> students in terms of, well, why do they have to ask for the resignation? And why do they have to add all these other demands at it? What does not going to class have to do with these things? And how does disrupting the campus satisfy those goals? And aren't they concerned about the public image they put out about Howard and Howard University when they air our dirty laundry? And D'Angelo, those were the exact same <laughs> comments I got <laughs> right. when we protested anything, even some of the apartheid protests. I remember people telling me right. we were at Howard in the you know the mid to late eighties. We don't need to be talking about these things publicly. Let's 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 take care right. of these things internally. But unless you bring that kind of attention, if the students didn't take over the aid builder, the New York Times would not write have written a story about this. So you right. that level of agitation, you you're not ever going to accomplish much if if everybody remains comfortable. That's just how things are. So I, I applaud what yep. they're doing. I imagine that. Many of their demands um, that, that impact, uh, I think, things about having armed, whether security should be armed on campus. Um, they want accountability from the board in terms of how individual board members vote. They want access to faculty salaries and other things. They want uh, Howard to do something about the gentrification of the Detroit area, which surrounds Howard University and is particularly is quickly becoming much unlike a Chocolate City area. Uh, so I don't know how many of those demands and Frederick actually came out pretty quickly and addressed most of the demands directly, which I thought I, I will give him props on that, that that was unique that he did that so quickly and went, I don't think he didn't address his resignation, but he went point for point, at least his, his impression of what he'd like to see happen on some of these other demands. So I'm interested to see how this thing unfolds, but I support the students. Uh, I echo that. And, and, you know, it's ironic that, you know, first of all, uh, just to catch up. So Chris kind of, we I often fail to mention that there were student protests in, in uh, 
in response to this revelation about the uh, embezzlement in, in the financial aid office. Um, but, you know, Chris was also, for those that don't know, used to be the president of the Howard University Student Association. So uh, they, he and, uh, and another contributor to this program, Manati Jenkins, uh, they, they won the flagpole, you know, uh, raising these issues with Bullhorn. <laughs> so the first time I heard divest was these cats. We're talking about divest in South Africa, you know, and I thought I was politically astute, so I had to figure out what that was. Uh, before, this is before uh, the Internet. But, you know, it's ironic, back to the ironic, so it's ironic that folks from that era that were at that flagpole that went down and got arrested at the South African embassy and, and you know, called themselves, you know, you know their political education started at Howard University, it's really ironic to hear them on the other side of this uh, uh, issue uh, saying the same thing uh, about the students on campus that were said about us. <laughs> we were doing these kinds of things, you know, and uh, I just I, it's almost like this memory erasure. And to me, it's kind of, uh, it, it reminds me of my greater issues with uh with our generation in that you know we we came up and 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 you know during a lot of meism and, and selfishness and uh, you know we forgot our roots during the last 20 30 years uh in terms of politics that said um i too support the students uh because uh these are ongoing issues at howard you know we 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 love our university, but we got a lot of nostalgia attached to that love, you know. And it's again ironic that we as Howard alum talk about how our experiences at experiences at Howard gave us the edge that we have in life and in our respective professions because of what we went through at Howard and what we went through at Howard. With you know our issues with the administration, am I wrong? No, I mean, and, and the concept of challenging authority, particularly from you know an academic setting like at the university, I mean that that has been going on for generations. And you know, I I'm, I'm a, I I believe that that what we did at Howard, and you know the issues that we addressed. Um, whether we won various battles or lost them, it did, it did impact my thinking moving forward in life in terms of um, you, you can never get too comfortable that you can't challenge authority because authority is not right. always going to be right. It's not always going to be wrong. So you can't just reflexively say, I'm going to protest for the sake of protest. You have to root it in something that's important, that's identifiable, that you can actually measure some progress on. Um, but I know that that kind of spirit, once you have it, it stays in you. And I, so I applaud what the students yeah. are doing. Um, and I, I you know, I, we, I love Howard, but there are things about Howard that's always bothered me. And many of the things that the students have brought up, you know, that from the administration secrecy to the, particularly some of the relationship between students and the, um, the uh, security guards on campus. I mean, that was yeah. an issue when we were there. Yeah. In terms of them being more sensitive. So now what I think what they're saying is that they want to disarm them. They don't want armed guards or policemen on campus. So I'm just saying that that I would urge people to go 
They have HU Resist is their Twitter handle. And if you can't find the information, if you went to Twitter and put in hashtag HU Resist, you'll find the Twitter page. And on the Twitter page, you can read the complete list of demands as it relates to this issue. And what's, and what's unique about it um, in the sense that it's not that unique, if that makes any sense, is that the, the finding out about this, this financial aid scandal essentially was the tip of the iceberg that led to the students being able to say, we're going to go occupy the aid building because this is the last straw. And that's almost how it always works. It's never one issue that just kind of hits us. Generally, one issue pushes the ball off the table, and then it crashes, and that's mm-hmm. what kind of happened here. Yeah, 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 that's absolutely right. And, and you know, this year in particular, uh, you know, uh, with earlier this uh, this semester, um, with the, the pipes bursting on campus, you know, pointed to, you know, the, the continued problems with infrastructure or physical plan, I should say, up at Howard. You know, I, again, you know, we, we love Howard, but you go at the campus and say, this, this shit is the same. Drew Hall, when he all modernized Drew Hall, you know, and, 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 and stuff like yeah. that, you know, and tuition has skyrocketed. You know, the way but I look at it, man, is that was one of the demands to a freeze on tuition because it's it's gone up. Um, and you know, to Howard's argument is that for a school that with, with its resources, its services, um, a, you know, a front a front line research institution, that its tuition still is on the lower side of uh, you know uh, other schools that offer similar um, uh, opportunities that Howard does. But you still got to think about the people Howard caters to. And, That's you know, right. That how it does, how it still does bring in some of the best and the brightest students, but they still hail from economically challenged backgrounds. So that's right. one that's of their exactly. demands is that there's a freeze on tuition hikes. So I said that's why I would encourage folks to read the list of demands, and they're, they're, they're spelled out pretty clearly. I, I do admire how quickly these students organize, and how quickly they got their thoughts together. Um, I. I if I was on campus, I'd be really curious about, you know, is it ad hoc, how much current student government leadership is involved? Because I, I read names of some students, and they don't seem to be established leaders per se on campus. But I, I like that even more when, you know, rank-and-file students get up and, yeah. and organize. But that's essentially how we do in our communities anyway. It's not necessarily the elected officials. It's individuals who raise up, you know, from the various, you know, regular everyday folk. And on college campuses, which mirrors society in many ways, when students rise up, who don't have necessarily titles behind or in front of their names, and they take on responsibility. I think those are some of the most organic and effective student protests, period. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And, um, you know, and then, you know, as they said in The Godfather, you know, when they said, we got to have these wars every now and then to cleanse the black blood. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's, I, it's I, kind I, of a period. I, I agree with that. I agree. I, I think uh, I don't want to use the the mob reference, but it does make right? sense. I think. I mean, because April Silver did it when the board was going to bring on um, uh, Lee Atwater. Um, yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, we did it in the late '60s around uh, getting Black Studies mandatory yeah. on college campuses. Um, I mean, so it's it's it's. It does happen, and and it's and if we're ever going to, if we really want to move forward, um, it should happen. And I and I think that it, as long as it's not based on frivolous things, I don't really think any real student protest that I'm aware of, particularly on Howard's campus, was ever based on anything frivolous. 
So no, what's the other some no, calls? I'm actually no. making some calls today, some current students and some folk in D.C. just to see where this thing stands. But I, I, I applaud it. I think it's a good sign, and I do pray that something positive comes out of this um, when the smoke settles. And then we'll prepare for the next round. Now, and, and, and one last uh, note on this. Um, you know, both Chris and I are active alum. Uh, I know I've seen I'm, – I'm the president of our uh, local – alumni chapter here in Colorado. Chris, I've seen photos of you doing recruiting and uh, participating. Yeah, I, I, I go out and participate in college fairs where I represent the um, the Los Angeles Alumni Club, but through that Howard University writ large at, you know, trying to recruit and promote the school. So you you can simultaneously, it's like family, you can simultaneously yeah, yeah. support and love and, and give all you can for, you know, the well-being of your institution, while at the same time challenging it when necessary. Those things are mutually exclusive. That's the point I used to try to explain to students when we were protesting and disrupting classes and doing things to bring attention to different issues. It's not a hatred of Howard that prompts this. It's a love of Howard that prompts this. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you, you can't, you know, it's not like enabling. I mean, if you if you don't, if you just let – your family member, you know, drink, beer, responsible, don't don't spend their money, right? I mean, you never, they never become, reach their full potential. Uh, you, you, right. Time to time, you got to have some sort of intervention. Um, you know, and I, again, you know, people, fellow alum that we know well, and that, that were there, like I said, at the, at the flagpole, some of the comments are just killing me. I'm like, what the, what, what? Would you lose your your edge, or you know, or your your uh, you know your your thought to to keep things moving? We can't. You know, one of the things I heard keep hearing is uh, President. You know, again, folks act like it's if they have to choose sides. You know, you either with the president or you with the students, and I'm with both. You know, like you said, I mean, President Frederick. Uh, you know, however, you, if you want to say that he dropped the ball and not disclosing this earlier, okay, fine. But you no, know, he has addressed it and and he has responded to the students' demands. Uh, he seems to be wanting to to he's he's walking a tightrope um, to different constituencies and stakeholders. Yeah, he, 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 uh, it, the initial mistake from a PR standpoint was you know you you know sunlight's always going to be the best disinfectant, so you should have. I don't think anyone would have been mad that this happened. Not that they'd be happy, but they said, okay, you found out. Here's what happened. Here are the people who did it. This is how we're going to make it right. This is how we're ensure it never happens again. So we full disclosure for the entire Howard community, students, alumni, staff, faculty, staff, friends and supporters. You know, just we want to let you know that this happened. It's unfortunate. We particularly take serious any financial aid. Because their money, I believe, was geared to students in need. So that made that that was insult yeah. to injury that it was money being stolen. Yeah. There was money being stolen from students yeah. who actually needed it to pay their tuition. Right. So if that had right. happened, but like I said, to the students' point, if you read the list of demands and the other things they want, you could see that this had been something that was festering. Now the other thing you got to remember too is that most administrations, their policy can be simply to wait you out because you know they may be at Howard for years. Where students are transient, so right? You have a student leader who stick, you know, stick their neck out their second, third, fourth semester of sophomore, junior year. They have to focus on graduation soon. 
Their family's like, well, you got to get back in class. So the, the, the tactic often has been, and it was that way when we were there, just wait them out. So you, that's sometimes that's why you have to, when you hit, when you hit the anvil, when it's hot at, on a student protest, you got to put all your demands in now. So you yeah. can't you can't piece for this thing. So th- this tactic. Cause a lot of people say, well, why they want to ask for all these other things? I said, well, when else would they? You have to get yeah. when you have someone's attention is when you make your point. So you know yeah. that, what they're That's doing right. is not unlike what has what's going on, not just at Howard, many campuses. So once again, I encourage any listeners out there to you know check out what's going on relative to this protest, but also do some research, look at protests on Howard and other campuses that preceded this, and you'll see you know, glaring similarities that are, that are positive. And to, 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 to kind of close it out, it, and you made a great point about the administration versus, you know, the permanence of the administration versus the transient nation, nature of the students. That's where the alumni come into play. You know, right. Because, uh, you Anybody that's saying, why are we airing our dirty laundry? Then we need to be talking about, why do we have any dirty laundry to air? (laughs) (laughs) Let's fix that shit. All of us have had problems with the financial aid office. All of us with slow financial aid, not getting your your registration certified, you know, not being able to get your grades because your money didn't come through that should have been there. Uh, And, 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 and this is well, ongoing. We got to clean that. Clean that up. Go ahead. Well, you, the thing for and Howard has a unique situation. I know, and we can move on after this if you like. Howard's unique situation sure. is that oftentimes the real administration you want to focus on is in the White House, not in the A Building, and because Move. of or, or on Capitol Hill, right? But because Howard is right, two right. major institutions that get congressional appropriations, almost two hundred million dollars, something like two hundred plus million, there was always right. that dance between you have to walk a fine line between criticizing the federal government and its agents while Howard is getting the government appropriation. And I was always like, no, for me, that's more of a reason to, to criticize the yeah. federal government. You know, I mean, we're not. So the, the message we should send is that we essentially be bought off. How are we going to right. represent leading a leading a leading institution in Black America or Black the, the international struggle for human rights of people of color, and we can be bought off by by one of the leading proponents of individuals who adversely affect people of color around the world? So I, I would always counter that argument, but I used to hear that all the time. You know, we got our money from government, and I've heard people say that now. What well, is how is this going to impact when you have to go make the you know the because you have to get Frederick has to go and. Go before the appropriations committee and lay it out. Why how it needs the money? Every year they have to do that. So I mean that so that that, that puts unlike other institutions, Howard has that that interesting twist where it does receive by the congressional act, it does receive finance, you know, aid from the government, which through the appropriations. And I think it's, I, and there's only one other school which slips me. I used to think it was John Hopkins, but it's not John Hopkins. So it's Howard and one other institution that folk would know that get the government appropriation like that. And then there, that, so back to the alumni, which is more reason. If you don't want to have that argument, then start giving back to the school. And don't just give back to the school. Give back to the school with conditions. Like, hey, we can't have this shit. I'm sorry. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's how we got to, you know, start, 
expanding our thoughts, so to speak. So, um, mm-hmm. all right. So, so it, uh, this is a multi-parter. So we are getting to topics that are listed in the uh, in the uh, announcement, uh, which uh, brings to mind uh, Brown, Linda Brown, the the plaintiff student in the landmark uh, Supreme Court case, uh, Board, Brown versus Board of Education, which was actually five separate lawsuits. Uh, filed by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, and which went through, I believe, two or three permutations. Uh, There was the first uh, ruling uh, that said that, uh, well, Brown versus Board of Education uh, was a a legal strat, was the culmination of a legal strategy that was in Acted by Charles Ham, the great Charles Hamilton Houston, uh, Howard University law professor, uh, and and his legal team, which included Thurgood Marshall, uh, who later became Supreme Court justice, and Paulie Murray, uh, sister, uh, which was, she was one of the more uh, uh, innovative thinkers on that uh, legal team. So look her up, y'all, Paulie Murray. Um, but uh, so that so. Uh, the history traces back to slavery and uh, the constitutional amendments that ended slavery and granted uh, the freed slaves uh, free uh, now citizenship and uh, due process and equal protection of the law and voting rights, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment, uh, respectively. Um, and during the uh, immediate aftermath of 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 those, the passage of those amendments and the, and the end of the Civil War, the country went through Reconstruction, um, Reconstruction being, you know, the rebuilding of the nation, but in racial terms, in racial uh, legal terms, uh, we went through what they call Jim Crow laws. There actually was a period immediately following the uh, the uh, the end of the Civil War that there was uh, some pretty strong uh, and progressive uh, 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 leadership by the Republican Party, and um, and there was representation of, of, of black uh, black people in in, uh, in Congress. Um, so uh, look that up too. Um, but Jim Crow laws uh, were were laws that essentially uh, enforced this uh, segregation and and the separation of the races, so to speak. It was uh, uh, so uh, so-called separate equal, right? Well, th- so what happened was that that's what not really almost. So what happened was Jim Crow law said you couldn't shop in certain places, you couldn't uh, go to certain schools, you couldn't get certain right. jobs, you couldn't ride on the train, um, and so uh, there was a, a, a so a challenge to those Jim Crow laws was. Uh, Culminated in a case called Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, in which um, uh, I think uh, that's where the separate but equal doctrine was, where it said that uh, right. uh, the the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court essentially said the 14th Amendment granted equal protection uh, by law, but it didn't. But social inequality or social separation couldn't be addressed by the Constitution. So as long as uh, the separation was equal, then, you know, 
the the maintenance of uh, this stratification in society was fine. And so uh, what Brown did was uh, was was to uh, attack the fallacy of that ruling. And uh, Charles Hamilton Houston came up with a legal strategy to attack that, and he chose the area of education uh, to do so. Um, and so he started about, he went about uh, setting up his own precedent by challenging um, separate but equal uh, access uh, to higher in higher education uh, institutions. And so he started off with a case that challenged. Uh, uh, a lost a black law student tried to uh, forgot what school it was. University of Maryland uh, was denied a black uh, uh, potential ca- black candidate law school candidate from from entering the school. So uh, that Charles Hamilton Houston and his team attacked that that practice and 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 won. And they went ahead and spread that to. Uh, Colleges, and then it ended up in public schools uh, with the Brown versus Board of Education. Brown being the lead case, like I said, it was five different cases. And right. So, uh, I, I would suggest people look it up because right. a lot of people don't realize that it was a group of people. Um, Brown, you know, obviously that became like the lead plaintiff, and that was the name that was used publicly, but there were other families involved in other states too. Actually, it wasn't just Topeka, Kansas. Right, that's right. That's absolutely right. It was different states, and um, I can't remember why they chose that school. Uh, Linda Brown. Uh, so Linda Brown was in lived in a neighborhood that was uh, diverse, so to speak, and uh, tried to enroll in a school that was close to her, uh, but they wouldn't let her go to that school, attend that school, and so she had to go to a school that was further away, and that's where the challenge happened. And so you know. Uh, so the you know without getting too technical about what the Supreme Court ruled, they essentially said the separate was not necessarily equal. Uh, that particular ruling received some criticism from both sides. Uh, but you know, let's just talk about real quick um, the notion of uh, <laughs> the, the fallout from that, uh, which was you know. They, they said that uh, – so the second Brown case was the ruling that said uh, the, the nation was to end segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. And uh, so, you know, but, but the fallout that, but from that – how that would happen. That was, it was to all deliberate speed, but without any clear idea how each local municipality was supposed to make that happen. Absolutely. That's right. And so, so then that's when you start you know, to the, the, go ahead. The, no, the thing I want to add is that you, if you think about the context, so this was what, early 50s, 50, I think it, the, the ruling came down in 54, yeah. but it, I think this began like a few years, like 51, or 52 or something like right. that. So you think about the timing. Um, and, and when you do some research on this, interestingly, um, that was also really the, the Cold War was shifted into high gear in the early 50s. And so... Yep. What was happening, too, interestingly around this, was that there were American officials, um, congressmen, senators, uh, judges, Supreme Court judges, who would go around the world to make you know, speeches and meetings and would get challenged about America's treatment of its brown and black citizens. And this was at a time when, when in the, the struggle for you know, the, the, the Cold War, 
propaganda was that, you know, this is the land of the freak. So that it was so that the concept of separate but equal, knowing that it was inherently unequal, on the world stage was starting to put the American officials, who many of them had to deal with this case, in bad positions. Because I remember reading some of the about some of the Supreme Court justices who were like, "We, I keep getting asked questions about how can we stand for this and that when I'm in, you know, India or, or France or Germany or someplace. How can we how can we stand when we treat people of color so poorly?" So I always thought that the Brown Board of Education in 54 dovetailed into the murder of Emmett Till in 55, which mm. supercharged, I thought, what we consider the modern civil rights movement. Then King did his thing in Montgomery in the late 50s. But you draw a line between those because, as you said, Charles Houston and, and Thurgood Marshall basically provided the schematic about how legally these issues could be dealt with. Right. Um, so, you know, it's hard to look at that in a vacuum. You have to place it in the context of the times uh, and the other things that were surrounding it. Now, that's such a great observation and one that I was I overlooked in prepping for this show. Um, Derek Bell is, is outstanding treatise uh, entitled uh, Race, Racism, and the American Law. Brings that very point, nails that point home, Um because there was, you know, again, and 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 Plessy, they talked about what you could do in law, but that, you know, socially the law couldn't address that. So what you pointed out in terms of being, uh, this 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 legal, uh, would you use the word schematic? I like that. Um, you know, that was one framework to to the push, but the social part came about afterwards. You know, with again tying in King. Uh, you know the civil rights movement, and uh, King being the, the face of that, so to speak. But yeah, I mean, uh, we, Derek we, Bell we, we often give we often give a lot of the uh, the, the, the modern civil rights movement. I mean, we've been dealing with civil rights since we got off the boat, to sure. be quite honest. But the modern civil rights movement is often we kind of look at it, you know, from maybe the Montgomery bus boycott, which was late '57, I believe, into the March on Washington. It's like the, the but I really I think border. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education, and then Amber Till murder, because um, yeah, you know that was the legal piece, and then the social element, and then it within the context of the of the Cold War, it put it. it I mean, America was getting called at the United Nations many times about this. So all these things in context to each other provided the atmosphere for I think what did take place moving to the late fifties, early sixties. So, like I said, when you think about this, always, it's, it's I think it's important to tie in the different. Pieces and then looking at what what was going on going on in America at that time, and I think you know I, when you read about what what the the NAACP and the lawyers were trying to do, they knew that this was basically there would be a domino. It wouldn't be one thing unless they could get yeah, this, right. then the other things could be addressed. Yeah, absolutely, that's right, right. Uh, so back to the Cold War. That's uh, Derek Bell noted how uh, the, the the international uh, playing field impacted uh, these that, that ruling in particular and the and the dismantling of those laws because at that time uh, communist, the Communist Party again you know was pushing for more uh, uh, for lack of a better word radical changes to uh, civil rights and labor uh, protections so to speak and uh, and uh, and we're supporting, uh, 
you know, uh, around the world, uh, black uh, efforts uh, to uh, to be freed from uh, European colonization, uh, particularly in Africa and uh, right. um, and and I believe not necessarily the Caribbean, but Cuba. Um, so that that was a big push, and I I, I thank you for uh, setting that context uh, because uh, that's important. I I, I mean yeah, I, so. So I'm, I'm I'm sorry that the you know the sister actually the, I think the father wasn't um, I read as I was doing a little preparation to Oliver Brown was her father so I think he was actually the plaintiff right so it was but he did it on behalf of his daughter right right, right. you're right that, that that I thank you for the correction the the father was the plaintiff the daughter was the impacted party so to speak uh, you know we call that uh, what is it? I forgot the word. Uh, I don't want well, to say he, beneficiary, but he. Do you know what I right. always forget though was that it was a unanimous decision. Yeah, there, it, that's absolutely right. Um, it was and a unanimous I, I decision. I think oftentimes when I think of that, I don't, I don't remember that to be honest. I, that, 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 that also is worth reviewing because that that doesn't happen much at the Supreme Court. Well, they so so. If you look at the history, they they had bandied this kind of issue about, and uh, for a while they but they couldn't come together on on how they were going to uh, nudge, I guess, America towards uh, you know this uh, you know uh, dismantling this this separate but equal doctrine. Um, so the 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 uh, Earl Warren. With the chief justice prior to Earl Warren passed away, and Earl Warren became the chief justice, and he was the one that kind of brought the nine justices together uh, to 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 you know agree on that particular principle. Um, right. You know, one of the law clerks, I forgot who he, he who he was uh, a law clerk for. One of the law clerks was William Rehnquist. William Rehnquist oh. was uh, yeah he he got appointed to the court by by Richard Nixon, and then elevated to Chief Justice by uh, by uh, Reagan. Uh, Rehnquist was arguing as a law clerk that Plessy v. Ferguson was a perfectly fine law and that they shouldn't overrule it. Uh, Rehnquist went on to be a lawyer who uh, was was uh, uh, who was supporting intimid- I believe intimidation of voters trying to register in Arizona. Uh, so, you know, that's an interesting twist uh, that he got. I didn't know that. I would have to look that up. Yeah, Rand was was a clerk on that. On that, um, He wrote a memo. Uh, and he had to answer for that memo when he was uh, being uh, considered to, to, to become the chief justice. Uh, so, yeah, look, yeah, all y'all looked that up. Rand Winquist. Rehnquist is spelled... R E H N Q U I S T. So, uh, so yeah, they had to be pushed. I mean, they had. It took them a minute to to right. get some consensus Bye. on that. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so what we'll do is uh, we'll pick up on part two of this discussion uh, tomorrow and, and tie in Brown uh, and at, at the point that Chris kind of uh, pointed out. To this, to the modern civil rights movement, and, and to tie it back to Howard, I know we're diving this tomorrow. 
when Chris talks about student activism, uh, we had some prominent Howard students that were uh, that were significant members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, SNCC. Uh, so uh, we'll we'll leave y'all with that. You could, you'll know that you probably know the answer by tomorrow, uh, tomorrow's show. So uh, we'll wrap it up at this point. Uh, please tune in. Uh, to our next show on this And thank you for tuning in to this particular show uh, Thanks to Chris Cascart uh, We have a new uh, New emblem now That Chris designed <laughs> That we're using now So uh, please uh, Check that out uh, Please subscribe to our show on iTunes And SoundCloud And if you would be so kind to leave us a rating And a review that would help us uh, let us know what you like and in particular what you don't like and what you'd like to see more of. Uh, thanks, Chris, and we'll holler at you later, Thank you, brother. Dude. All right. Happy Easter. All right. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Same to you. Bye.